excited about the message today, and uh, and mostly because we're going to get just a little bit nerdy. Um, this is what I love and have always loved, um, the stuff we're going to talk about today. And um, years ago, uh, when I was kind of new to the faith and and really into like kind of philosophical things, but trying to figure out what it meant to be like a follower of Jesus, I was talking to my mentor one day, and, and a buddy of mine um, and I were writing a paper in college, we were both in the same class we're writing this paper um, called What is Reality? It was a philosophy class and we're, we were doing metaphysics and epistemology and trying to sort out how you tell what is real from what is not real and, and how you define those things. And so I went to my mentor and I, you know, um, brilliant guy. And I was like, hey, how would you answer this question? What is reality? And he was like, it's getting up every morning and going to work and paying your bills and taking care of your family because it's the right thing to do. And I was like, <laughs> that's cool, cool. No, 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 no. But what I mean is like in the grand sense of things, in the big sense, like how do you know what is? Because, you know, not every things that aren't can't be. Like, so how do you know what is and what is not? And he was like, you get up every morning and you go to work and you do the things you're supposed to and you pay your bills because that's the right thing to do. And I was like, Boy, you're underthinking it a little bit. Let's try this one more time. And, uh, and we went round and round, and he never would budge. And, uh, and so um, if that's you, I, I recommend Sudoku. It's a fun little phone game thing because you're not going to have much fun today. Um, we're going to get a little bit weird. Um, and I'm super excited about today's message um, and really this entire series. But today we're going to get a chance to get just a, a little bit nerdy. Um, and I'm going to unpack mostly from my vantage point. Uh, why I do what I do, why I follow Jesus, why, I, um, why this means something um, to me. Uh, because I have to admit from the outset, I'm a nerd, and I wrestle with some uh, fairly deep questions, and, uh, and how I've come to answer those questions um, matters to me. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. I'm going to let you into a little bit of the craziness that goes on in here and how I make sense of some of that noise. So if faith comes easy to you and you've never um, struggled with the big existential questions and you've never doubted and you've never wrestled with a very real possibility that, that God may not be real, then this morning's message might be um, a tough one for you. So, uh, yeah, so I won't be offended if you jump on the phone games. Um, we're talking about the Apostles' Creed um, for the next several weeks. Um, and we've kind of kicked off this year. Um, leaning into the idea of core strengths, like what it means, hoping to spend some time looking back at the basics of what it means to be a Christ follower. And you could not get much more fundamental um, than today's message as we're going to be talking about what it means to say, I believe in God. Um, And as a matter of review, I want to kind of reiterate something that we said last week, that we get the English word creed from from the Latin word credo, credo, um, and this word is, is kind of a fundamental word in the Apostles' Creed. It's the, it's the opening word. I, um, credos in deum, I believe in God. And, uh, and as we talked last week, there are plenty of Latin words in the Latin lexicon that we could have used to talk about belief. All of those words. Not that word. Not those. It's coming. I be- back one, back one. There we go. Um, we could have used, they could have used any of these words to talk about belief. All of these words are, are words used in the Latin language for belief. And every single one of them means to mentally agree with a particular statement, to believe it. Two plus two is four. I believe that. Um, and any of those words could be used to say that. Um, so it would be akin to us believing that George Washington was the first president of the United States. 
But the early church fathers didn't choose any of these words to define what it means to believe in the tenets of the Apostles' Creed. They chose the word credo, to believe, to trust, to confide in, to rely on, to have confidence in, to depend upon. And as we dive in uh, today to talk about what it means to believe in God, and honestly, why that's important to me personally, we really need to keep this definition in mind, because we are not doing the thing where we just load up our apologetic guns so that we can, um, you know, shoot answers at people and go, ha, now what are you going to do with that? Ha, now what are you going to do with that? That's not what we're doing today. Our hopes this morning are to wrestle with the big why questions. Why believe in God? Why believe in Him? And, and, And how should that impact uh, me, how should my belief in God change things? Because here's the deal. This is absolutely foundational to everything, I believe. Not just matters of faith and worship, but literally everything rests on the question, Credus and Diem, do you believe in God? The, the Apostles' Creed opens this way. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So let me start by saying this. We don't have time this morning to dive in heavily to the physical universe and its origins. Um, There are countless great debates and lectures and books and classes that you can dive into online to get into this kind of stuff, the age of the earth, the impact of the great flood, carbon dating, and, you know, all that stuff. And it can be really fun. Uh, But at the end of the day, theories about creation and the universe digress into talking about something that took place so long ago that almost 100% of what we are doing is historical speculation. Um, And I just don't see a lot of fruit from that. Um, so as I said, I'm, I'm going to stick pretty close this morning to the things that I consider paramount um, in my belief in God. And for me, the, the moral universe, the heaven part of that statement, um, is far more intriguing than the physical universe, the earth part. Because honestly, the fact that we live in a moral universe, um, for me, is astonishing. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. The majority of what uh, it means to be human comes down to the idea of morality right and wrong. Ultimately, it's what makes us different from the whole rest of creation. The fact that we have some form of understanding of morality. If someone hurts you or offends you, almost never is your offense a matter of injury. You're not upset that you were injured in some way. If so, if someone specifically bumps into you and they apologize, virtually no offense is taken. Because the problem isn't actually with what happens to you. The, the reason we get offended is because we feel that some moral offense has taken place. Something, some wrong was done, and that bugs us, that irks us. You know, what you did was not right. We make statements like this. And this is universal. It doesn't matter whether you're morally conservative or morally liberal. It doesn't matter if it's a silly, impersonal offense like forgetting to take out the trash, or if it's a great societal offense like who should pay taxes or what pronoun you should use to talk about somebody. At the root of it is uh, of almost every interaction as humans comes down to the question of right and wrong. I choose the clothing that I chose this morning or even to wear clothing at all because we live in a moral universe and those things matter. And what's ironic is that we rarely debate whether or not that's true. We just assume we live in a moral universe. Everybody assumes that, that there is a right and wrong. Almost nobody is running around arguing for moral anarchy, like that, that there is no morality whatsoever. In fact, if, if you gave up on the idea that there is an objective um, right and wrong, we would have nothing to argue about. If you didn't believe that there was an idea of right and wrong, then arguing makes zero sense. In fact, if you ran around screaming that everyone should knock it off and stop telling everyone else how to live and stop, you know, 
trying to push your morality on people because uh, morality is, is, is totally subjective and it's incredibly personal, that's a moral statement. Like you can't, you can't challenge somebody else's morality without making a moral statement. To say it's wrong of you to push your morality on people, you see the problem? You just use the word wrong. Like, and wrong, you know, suggests that there's a right. And you can't say that something's wrong, even somebody being moral. That's a moral statement. They go, it's wrong of you to force your morality on me. Well, you just did it to me. That's a moral statement you just made, that it's wrong to do something. Everyone knows that we live in a moral universe. We live in a world, even the people that tell us not to do something are taking a moral position. You can't say it's wrong to impose morality without assuming there is a morality, without pushing your morality. And it's a major issue in my book, uh, because if we believe there is no God, then we have no morality. And the, the idea that we just developed a morality makes, sen- that makes no sense to me. If we live in a, in, in, in a moral universe of any kind, we have to ask where that morality came from. Then we have to wonder why we believe it. Because if, if you watch a monkey walk around, you know, on two legs and with great dexterity pick the bugs out of its partner's hair, I can understand making the, the logical jump that given enough time and some outward pressure, that thing might turn into a person. I get that. I understand where they come up with that. But I do not see why that evolved monkey would grow empathy. That makes absolutely no logical sense. Why, why that evolved monkey would develop a morality at all. Because in nature, morality is brutal. And science established this a long time ago. Survival of the fittest, they call it, the mechanism that drives natural selection, where fitness is defined by reproductive success, by, by hanging around long enough, fitting into the surroundings long enough that you can mate and send your genetic material into the future. The healthiest, strongest, most suited um, you know, member of any given species mates and sends its genetic material on. And this theory has been used to explain why we have long-necked giraffes and birds with hollow bones and the color of moths. And, the, and, and it's a brutal process. There's nothing moral about it. If, 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 uh, when it's applied to the animal kingdom, it's very pragmatic and natural. If you're not tall enough to reach the leaves, you die. And the tall giraffes survive. And so that's why we have long-necked giraffes. Because giraffes grew in a places where all their food was up high. And if you were too short to get there, you didn't send your, your, your genes into the next generation. And so all the short-necked giraffes die. It's brutal. And if we are nothing but another creature holding a place in the evolutionary timeline, then it seems the only natural scientific morality we should expect is this Darwinian evolutionary ethic. Just like the rest of the animal kingdom. For instance, the United States is now militarily capable of eliminating all competition for resources from the entire continent of Africa. Whatever fitness to survive needed to kick in, it seems evolutionarily speaking, America was chosen by evolutionary process to be the ones who should be able to see the next generation. And there's a ton of resources in Africa. So the only thing that makes any evolutionary sense whatsoever, if we're using scientific ethics to secure our own survival, it's only logical that we wipe Africa off the map and take those resources. That's what any other species on the planet would do. And it's not just like, well, but they're humans. No, one wolf will destroy other wolves to survive. Like that's, it's, it, evolution is brutal. Evolutionary, evolutionary biologists have, 
have determined that that uh, to let their cub survive, any species will eliminate other members of its own species for its own survival. So the only thing that makes sense is for us to wipe Africa clean off the map and take it. Why would we not? That's what the evolutionary, the evolutionary ethic demands. So why almost every human on the planet says, you can't do that. Why we all get that feeling in our gut that goes, that's terrible. You can't just take things. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't just show up and evolve. When nothing else on earth has it, there has to be an answer for why we have morality. The fact that there has never been a society of human that hasn't recognized some need to define and articulate right and wrong, even if it hinders their own ability to, to survive evolutionarily speaking, to me means there is something going on beyond the physical universe. There's something happening in the, in the unseen world that we can't quite define, at least not with science. And I've simply never heard a scientific rationale for why morality should universally exist amongst humans. That comes anywhere close to the statement made in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That makes more sense to me than anything I've ever read in science for why you and I should care about one another at all. Because to believe in God is to believe that the world was made with a purpose and a design and that what happens in the universe matters. And I don't know how you get there without God. And here's why I feel that way. And this isn't the first time I've done this. Uh, from this pulpit, so if you've, if you've been here a while, you've likely seen this before, but bear with me. Our church sits right here in relationship to Wellsville. That's Wellsville up there. That's us down there. Everybody recognizes that map. Even, even, even a single individual in our church can have an impact on the, on the town of Wellsville. So from this vantage, it's easy to see why we would have purpose and, and some influence in the world. But what happens if you zoom out a little? That's Kansas, and we're that little dot there. We're a little speck that represents one of the thousands of churches in the state of Kansas. And if we're honest, Open Table Community Church doesn't have much impact on the comings and goings in the rest of the state. We have our little tiny speck of a window. And if you zoom out even a little more, you know, other than vacationing, you know, here and there, no one from Open Table is going to have much impact on that. Open Table doesn't have much to say about the 356 million people that are represented in that map. We're just a, we're just a speck in the middle of all that. It's, and it's easy to start feeling insignificant, isn't it? And of course, unless you're a flat earther, we can zoom out a little bit more. And at this much, it's pretty much impossible to even identify Kansas. We're somewhere around that arrow. Clearly, Wellsville is out of the picture. And we have some folks in our church that, that, that support global missionaries, so I wouldn't say we have zero impact on that, on that picture. But honestly, the two billion people calling themselves Christians somewhere on that ball, our little church barely registers. And of course, we all know that our little blue rock is pretty small in comparison to our sun. That's us. That little dot. 
Yeah, we had this, uh, they sent this, this satellite, just sent it straight out of our solar system, like launched it out and it was never going to come back. And its whole job was to take pictures on its way out. And a couple of years ago, we got the final message that it could send before it got outside the realm of communication. And it sent back that picture. That's a real picture. That little black dot is our beloved Earth, and I welcome you to imagine where OTCC is on that (laughs) dot. Because remember, you know, we can't even find ourselves on that picture, and and our little town is lost there, so this is, (laughs) that's gone. But of course we can zoom out more. This is where things get really fun. This is our galaxy. This is our galaxy. And our sun is actually not big enough to show up on this picture. It's too small. But if you imagine a little pinprick over there in what they call the habitable arm of the, of the galaxy, which that's a fun word, that's apparently where you can live is in that one little neighborhood over there. If you were to put a pinprick on that, just a poke, too small to actually show up in the picture, but a little pinprick, our entire solar system would fit in that pinprick. That pink, our sun and all, the, all the, the planets that surround it would fit in that little tiny pinprick. Over there where the red arrow is somewhere. So this is the galaxy where we live. And our entire solar system is too small to fit in that picture. So how tiny is Open Table Community Church? Like it's crazy. And our galaxy, this, this whole picture where our solar system is too small to show up, though it's a good, sturdy, blue-collar, everyday, ordinary galaxy, is too small to show up. Our telescopes have actually picked up this. This is the known universe. And actually, it's, this is a little outdated. They've gotten a few new satellites out recently that, that can go farther than this. But this is a, this is a decent picture of, of the known universe, right? And, and that's our, our galaxy, that thing that we were too, our whole solar system was too small to show up in, is right there in the middle. And we don't actually think we're in the middle. It's just when you shoot pictures in a 360, you can, that's just all we can map. And, of course, you know, you look the same distance in every direction. It's going to look like you're in the middle. We don't actually believe we're in the middle. But but somewhere in that dead center is the galaxy that our solar system is too small to show up in, the center of which is the sun that we look like a little black dot on. We're dwarfed. It's pretty easy to start feeling meaningless. And incidentally, commenting on this picture, we don't, oh, uh, we already said that, we don't think we're in the middle. As weird as it is that this world is full of people trying to deny the existence of God, all the while totally recognizing that we live in a moral universe, we all take that for granted, there is a right and wrong. As though that's not a weird contradiction to live in a universe with no God, but that does have morality. But when I look at the scale of any of this, how small are the greatest of human endeavors? How ridiculous is the rise and fall of human empires and kingdoms on the scale of this? The scope of the entire universe uh, is, is so huge. How is it possible that we would have any meaning whatsoever. And if you personally, or, or all of OTCC, let's say, matter, and if you're looking for meaning outside of God, good luck. 
If you're looking for some secular humanist meaning in the universe, if you want to find something other than God that gives you meaning in all of that, good luck. You are a single person in one of the five churches of a small town that is one of 627 municipalities in the state of Kansas, which is only one of 50 states in America, which is one of 195 countries on earth, which is a fairly small planet around a really small little sun that sits in the backwoods neighborhood of a completely ordinary everyday galaxy, which is one of a few hundred million galaxies in the known universe. And if you can find significance in that, apart from God, have at it. Because frankly, if the universe just sprung into being on its own, then I can't find any significance in the greatest of human endeavors. The greatest human achievements in history are meaningless on that kind of scale. Imagine the rise and fall of great human empires throughout history (laughs) in in light of that. All of human existence means nothing in light of that picture. Without God, we are a speck crawling on a speck, circling a speck, floating in a speck that sits in a random mass of other specks. Without God, meaning simply does not exist. And this is what makes Psalms 8 so special. Because David said, when I look at the night sky and I see the wonders of your fingers, the moon, the stars you've set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or human beings that you should care for them. David might as well have been looking at at that picture. And David came to the realization that I think most humans believe but simply won't admit. Yet you've made them a little lower than God's and crowned them with glory and honor. This is how I think the majority of the world lives. We, We live like our lives matter. We live like we have glory and honor. We live like like our lives have meaning. But here's what I believe. Our lives only mean something. And I believe our lives mean something. I believe our lives are incredibly important. But it only means something. In the scale of that size universe, we only have significance because God has given us significance. The past couple hundred years, we've tried to elevate human life in ways where we've made these, we'd be miraculous wizards in any other time period. In history, we've fed and figured out how to feed more people than any other time in history. In the past hundred years, we've lifted more humans out of abject poverty than ever before combined in human history. We've invented air conditioning. Praise God. We've shrunk the planet and figured out how to communicate with everybody on earth. And we've, if you've ever wondered how in the midst of all these amazing advancements, the world continues to grow more despondent, more depressed, more violent, more individualistic and narcissistic. If you've ever wondered how we can take 3D pictures now of an unborn baby and see in incredible detail what's going on inside there, inside this little human's growth and development, and at the same time publicly debate a procedure that would have made the majority of human history vomit just to talk about it. If you ever wondered how those two things can go together, If you've ever wondered why people suddenly want to shoot up crowds of innocent people because guns have always been available, that's not new. If you've ever wondered why we suddenly have no regard for human life. If you've ever wondered why the train has gone so terribly off the rails, it's this. 
Once you've been made aware of this and you're taught in school and in the media and in TV and movies and social media, when you find yourself living infinitely tiny lives somewhere in this gigantic map and you're inundated with the idea that there is no God, human life begins to mean nothing. It can't mean anything. If you believe in that picture and you believe there is no God, your life can't mean anything. Less than nothing. You stepping on an ant would have no more or less significance than the great rise and fall of human empires without God. There is simply no way that anything has meaning. But, and for me this is the most comforting but in the world. That's something I just said. But if you stand with David and you believe that not only is God real, but that He has created humans and crowned them with glory and honor, then you can state with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. Suddenly, human life has meaning and purpose. This is the great lie of the humanistic era. The more you try to elevate humanity and eliminate God, the less meaning you wind up bringing to human existence. If you take God off the throne, we mean nothing. We are only special because God has made us special. Because he made us in his image. And that changes everything. Over the past 30 years, I've come to find Butch's answer. What is reality? More philosophical and existential than I originally thought. Because only if the Apostles' Creed kind of universe, only in the Apostles' Creed kind of universe, only in a world made and sustained by God, only in a world imbued with meaning from a moral and divine creator, creator could getting up in the morning every day and going to work and making money to provide for the people you love, only in a world where God is on the throne could that have meaning. Only in a world where God is on the throne could that be important? To say that there is something bigger than this picture. But there's a danger in believing that God made this picture. Even if David is right and God has crowned us with glory and honor and, and God could create everything in this picture from nothing... that he could call meaning into the most utterly unknowable, tiny little speck like us humans. There's a danger to that. If the early church fathers had said this, I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth. I don't know that human life would mean any more or be any more comforting than living in a giant universe with no God. When you see God as an all-powerful but arbitrary and potentially emotionless being or worse yet, emotional and mean-spirited, then human life is not only meaningless, it's a terror. But that's not what the creed says. The creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. There's some really cool theological boundaries that the early church was using when they, when they talk about God in this way that we're actually going to talk about later in the series, but we'll dip our toes in just a little bit. Because nowhere in the creed does, does the language define the essence of God's being. They didn't even try to do that. They understood that that's impossible. 
They didn't, they didn't try to explain the essential nature of any of the Godhead. That's part that's unknowable and mysterious. But the writers of the Creed focused on God's nature, not on God's nature, but, uh, but what was revealed in his relationship and his behavior and activity. And here's what I mean by that. God is known, and we declare that, that we credo God, we believe in God, we commit ourselves to God based on what he does, his activity, uh, which is to create, and also by how he functions in relationship, which is best defined by the word Father. And this is, this is such an important word in the creed because, um, as I said, living with an all-powerful creative force that is not very comforting and does not necessarily inspire meaning and purpose if he's not also a father. And don't get hung up on the gender because God also relates himself to a mother oftentimes. He said, a mother would sooner forget her infant than I would forget you. But we'll stick with the word. Relating to the creator as someone who has our best interest in mind and truly loves us, this is what makes living in our universe different. And that's where we want to land today. What is, what is that universe supposed to be like? What does it mean to believe in God as creator and father? And first and foremost, it means design. To believe in God is to believe that the universe was made for a purpose. You were made for a purpose. To believe in God as both creator and father is to believe that he has a plan for your life and that you have a responsibility to that plan. You are not an accident or a random chance. Even of, You're not even the genetic product of two reproductive individuals. You were created by God for a purpose. And your primary purpose is to be you. I know that sounds cheesy, but that is your primary purpose. Because the way that they chose, God chose to reveal himself to us is Father. I believe in God, Father Almighty. And the first way we believe in God is relational. A father is only a father in relationship to a child. You ever thought about that? You cannot be a father unless there's two of you. And I believe that relationship can be formed many different ways, biologically, adoptive, step, whatever. But the one thing that's universal is the role of father only exists in light of a relationship to a child. And so when it says that I believe in God the Father, the very first thing we're saying we believe is in a relationship. That he has a specific relationship in mind between us and him. So I believe not only that we declare we believe in God, but that we believe that he is the almighty father. And we're saying he is designed for and made for relationships. So my very first role as a human being is to be in relationship with God. I, am, I can only know God and can only relate to God in the relationship that he's defined. We have a tendency, tendency to define ourselves by what we do, and I believe that our work is important. I believe we're designed to be productive. But the primary thing we're made for is relationship, to be in relationship with God. And we are intentionally designed to be in relationship to a father, to be a child in relationship to a father. And I consider this to be supremely important because everything else in the gospel will spin out of that original design. So often we have the tendency to believe that the gospel is about the fact that we're all sinners deserving of hell and Jesus came to save us so we could go to heaven instead. And the only thing that makes that statement dangerous is the fact that it's 100% true. <laughs> it's, it's a true statement. We were all, we're all sinners destined for hell and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection saves us. But the real gospel story is much deeper than that. The gospel goes all the way back to our essential design. 
It doesn't start with us messing up and sinning and deserving hell. The gospel starts with the fact that we were created, designed, made, wired for a relationship with God. We are not what we are created to be because that relationship got broken. It starts with the fact that we're made for a particular thing. And that relationship got messed up. Sin isn't horrible because it leads to hell. Sin is horrible because it, it messes up our original design. We are no longer living the life we were created to live when we sin. We cannot be what we were made to be apart from God. The beauty of the gospel is that God created us for himself, for this relationship of father and child, and despite our sin, he made a way for us to be with him. And obviously we'll get more into the details of that when we talk about the activity and function of Jesus, but when we talk about God making us with a real purpose and design, the first thing that that means is that we were made for him. We were made to be in relationship with him, and nothing will be right when we're not in relationship with him. To be a child of God that he made us to be. The second thing that it means to believe that God is our father and the creator who designed us with a purpose is to believe that there's a right and wrong way to do things. When the Nicene Creed was written, where they added a little more definition to the Apostles' Creed, the writer of the Nicene Creed said, we believe in, in that he's the creator of everything visible and invisible, the physical universe and the moral universe, the ways of doing things both physically and morally. He did not create, we did not create the moral universe. We don't get to define the moral universe. Maybe one of the things that made me fall in love with the, with the Bible as a book that has the real answers to the questions that I struggle with is the fact that the oldest story we have about humans deciding if, if they wanted to answer the big questions about good and evil defines almost everything we see in human history. That the answers to what it means to be human seems to be in the third chapter of the book. Humans wanted to be the arbiters of right and wrong. And trying to come up with one human conflict throughout all of history that can't be summed up in that story. Somebody wants to do something they think is right. Somebody else thinks it's wrong. And so they fight and go to war because they can't agree on what is right and wrong. One side decides something is good and another side calls it evil and they fight over it. Almost everything in history comes down to this story that is told in the oldest book we have. And something that seems like it should, it should be absolutely black and white. I mean, how we even use the colors black and white to describe evil good and evil, but something that, that is so fundamental and yet someone else can believe the opposite. How could that possibly be? That something to me is so clearly evil and that someone else calls it good and we, and we wrestle over those things. Something as essential as good and evil seems to still, up, be, still be up for debate and that just seems absurd. I actually had a debate all, all week long with some of the guys putting in the HVAC system, which was kind of fun. And, and it was mostly because the guy I was debating, I agreed with almost like 99% of what we believe was the same, but I was just, he believed everybody that didn't believe the same as him was absolutely wrong. And I just kept trying to make the argument that, like, they have some good points. Like, yeah, I don't agree with them, but you also can't just throw them out. And he was like, but you can. And so we just had this big argument. Like we, we disagreed on like this much and we sat there and fought about it for hours and hours and hours this week. It's crazy that we would, that, that, that it's even, that there's even a debate around it. And yet that's what it means to be human. 
is to fight over good and evil. And, and somehow that story is told three chapters in. But the fact that the Bible starts with an explanation of, of going all the way back to the original humans that explains why we struggle so hard to define good and evil makes more sense of the world to me than science ever has. We were made for a moral universe, but the universe was never intended to be defined and outlined by us. When we say that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we're saying that we believe that God made the physical universe and He made the moral universe and we were created to live it His way. The fact that we fight against this is one of the ways we know that that old story is true. That the, that the fruit of that original tree is still alive and well. The book of Genesis, the story contrasts the tree where the humans went wrong, where they decided to choose for themselves good and evil. The contrast to that, the, the opposite side of that, was not a world where God chooses good and evil. I mean, it kind of is inferred, but that's not the other tree. The other tree is the tree of life. It's like either you pick for yourself what is good and evil, or you have life. You choose. The alternative to humanity dictating good and evil is that we could live. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that when we surrender, when we give up our lives, when we, when we agree to someone else's will, we don't lose in the exchange. On the contrary, we actually gain life. One of the best ways I've ever heard this described is, is in a game. If I were to ask you, hey, you want to play a game? And you were to go, yeah. And I went, okay, great. You go first. And you're like, I don't, I don't understand the game. Like, in that moment, you can do whatever you want. You can, you can play your best role, your best card, your best spin, whatever game you're into, and you can guarantee you've got the best possible move. And yet, nobody wants to play in that situation. In order for it to be a game, there has to be boundaries and rules and, and guidelines. That's what makes it a game. It, it's, it's only fun if, if there's a way to do it, if there's a way to play it. And I think our universe is the same way. We want to try and play this game with no rules. And because of that, it's a horrible game. It's only beautiful. It's only life-giving when we do it the right way. And even though it's more restrictive... Like my original offer, man, you're, you make the rules. You can do whatever you want. And yet we instinctively know that's no way to play. So when the Genesis story contrasts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the tree of life, it's an invitation to do things God's way. God's word is the way to life. And we were created to live that life. And when we obey that, we find life. And here's the deal. This is so much bigger than just moral precepts, than just, you know, obeying the rules. Because God's, words outline, God's word outlines the way to eternal life. And, and, and praise God, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have eternal life. But it also tells us how to eat well, how to rest well, how to clean and sanitize well, how to do our work well, how to exercise well, how to manage our money, raise our kids well, and on and on and on and on. Like the Bible really is an amazing book. And we have a tendency to narrow it down to a couple of do's and don'ts, but the Bible is so much more than that. To believe that God made us and loves us and that our, our, our life has value because God said it has value is to say that there's a right way to do this, a way that makes sense, a way that he knows is best. But even more important, those things tell us that God cares about those little things. 
God, God, I mean, when you read the Torah, it's amazing. They had like, they had like an economic system in there. They had like a health and human services in there. Like, hey, they had OSHA in there. Hey, make sure you put a fence around the top of your house. If someone falls off, you'll be guilty. Like, they had like OSHA up in there. Like, they had everything. He cares about how we treat people and he cares about how we eat. He cares about your worship and your devotion and he cares about your work. He cares about your prayers and your, and your dedication and He cares about your relationship with your kids. I love the word Father in the Creed because it just feels more holistic than just saying God. Many of us are comfortable worshiping and serving God, but we have no idea how to relate to Dad. And yet that's exactly how the Creed offers Him to us. So we recap. We live in a moral universe which only makes sense if there's a God. We only have value and significance if God is real and gives us that value and significance. And because the creed offers God to us in relational terms, namely as Father, we know our core purpose is only known in in the way we relate to Him. And because He made us and made this universe, our lives have meaning and value and they're designed to work and flourish if we do it His way. So how do we respond to this? The phrase, I believe in God, has, has sometimes grown meaningless because we've spent so much time fine-tuning what, that, what it means to be like a Christian and that we've almost learned not to trust that phrase, I believe in God. Because there are so many people who claim to believe in God, but they don't necessarily trust in Jesus, the Son of God, for their salvation. And, and so we, we, we don't put much weight on it anymore. But in all honesty, just believing in God, and it's, that's not the whole gospel. There is more that we need to believe to be saved. But it's where faith starts. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said this, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists. And that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. The first step to faith, the first step to receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ is by which we are saved is to believe in God. And as we talked last week, when we talked about the, the to credo God, it's more than just believing he's real. It's depending on him, relying on him, committing to him is to believe that not only does human life only have meaning because God has given it meaning, but is to believe that human life finds its fulfillment and satisfaction in God. In fact, if, if, if I've been processing and, and wrestling with, with Lena's death, and I realized while writing this sermon that the only reason it bugs me is because of this morning's message. Lena's life had significance because God gave it significance. Without God, there is literally nothing more natural than death. Everything dies, and we all know it. In the grand scheme of the size of the universe, what on earth could one woman's life and death possibly mean? But because God imbued Lena's life with meaning, her life, and therefore death matters. It sucks to lose her. And grief is not only the most natural thing in the world, in spite of God, but because of God. Because God gave value in, 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 to the human life. So not only is grief natural, it actually honors God to mourn 
the loss of, of one of his image bearers. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message is to wrestle with that question. Do I believe in God? Pretend you're a brand new convert from 2,000 years ago and you're about to be baptized and the pastor asks you, Kratos and Diem, do you believe in God? Trust Him, confide in Him, rely on Him, have confidence in Him. Do you see Him as your Father and relate to Him that way and as Creator? Do you frame your day around the way He said things should be? As you think about what your life is about, the number one thing that you know is that you were made to be with God. Like that's what you were made for. As you contemplate what your life is really about, how am I supposed to live? Does the things God said hold, hold prime position in your thinking? And obviously none of us are going to get these things right and perfect and we can only do them by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's something worth wrestling with. Do I live in this space that I have as though God is on the throne? Because the creed is not about mentally agreeing with a list of truths. I believe the first article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. To believe that should change you. It should change the way you live. It should change the way you exist in the world. It should change the the way you do the things you do. It should reframe your meaning and your purpose. And I promise you, that's the way to life.